Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Uh, so Isaiah 65, 17, 17 through 25. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create in Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will, not, will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child, and the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered a curse. They will build houses and dwell in them, and will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, and they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all of my holy mountain, says the Lord. Uh, now moving into the New Testament, we'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So that's New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, 1 through 12. It comes after Colossians. It took me a while to find it earlier. So, um, All right. Chapter 4. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions and we gave you by the authority of Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you would be sanctified, that you would avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in a passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of others, outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Amen. As we get going today in what is the last in our series on work, uh, work and worship, reconnecting the daily grind to the glory of God, um, I want to start with a story um, that I read in the Age newspaper um, from some time ago. Um, it was about a guy named Captain Angelo Keane, uh, who was a pilot with American Airlines. Um, Angelo Keane, uh, he'd just returned from a Christian missionary trip to Costa Rica. And if you've ever been on a missionary trip, you know you get a bit fired up and a bit zealous for the Lord when you come home. And so he came home from this mission trip to Costa Rica, particularly fired up, motivated to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was trying to work out how with all his zeal and passion and energy and things like that, how might he promote 
God and the gospel in his workplace. So how do you promote the gospel when you're a pilot? Well, as he took off on American Airlines Flight 34 from LAX, Los Angeles Airport, bound for JFK in New York, he had this wonderful idea that he would fire up the loudspeaker over the plane when they reached cruising altitude and he would tell everyone on board about Christianity. So as a follower of Jesus, um, he got on the loudspeaker, cruising altitude, I don't know, 30,000 feet above the earth, and he started to talk about Jesus over the loudspeaker. Um, you know, he said, you know, um, while you're on board, you know, you've got four hours, so I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. And then he said, but I can't talk for four hours, so what I want to happen is this. In the meantime, would everyone who's a Christian on board please raise their hand in the air now? Can you imagine that? Imagine you're on a plane and someone said, please raise your hand if you're a Christian. Would you do it? I don't think I would do it, actually. I don't think I would put my hand up. And then he said, I'd love you for the next four hours to take up the opportunity to strike up a conversation with one of those people who put their hand in the air. Now, the response was not exactly as he had planned. Right? In light of 9-11, some people on board thought this guy was a religious nutter and, and thought that he'd taken over the plane. One passenger, Amanda Nelligan, said that his words felt like a threat. You know, I'm in control of the plane now, get right with God before I ditch the thing. Apparently, passengers started getting their mobile phones out, trying to call loved ones and things like that. It wasn't going very well. He got into a bit of trouble, you can imagine, right, when he arrived at JFK Airport. But everything was fine, right? Everything was safe. Angelo was just zealous, right? Zealous for the Lord. He was just trying to work out how he could use his work as a platform for the gospel. And I share this story because I think it raises questions for us. It raises questions for almost every Christian that we'll ask, we'll ask at some point. You know, how does work, the work that I do, fit in with God's plan of redemption? How, you know, is, really, is work really just meant to be a platform for me to talk about Jesus with people? Is it really just a way of earning lots of money to give to those who preach the gospel near and far? How does work fit into God's plan of redemption and restoration? Well, as we've been trying to do in this series over the last few weeks, we've been trying to see how a topic like work fits into our idea of the Bible and theology which is like a fourfold story in the scriptures, which looks a bit like this, I think. There we go, fourfold story. Um, from creation to fall to redemption to restoration. That's like a summary of the Bible. Um, you can summarize the Bible in that kind of way, that, that creation, God creates the world and it is good. And yet the fall then happens and everything in the world is now touched by sin, by fallenness. And yet how the God of Israel throughout history and ultimately climactically through the person, work and death and resurrection of Jesus is committed to restoring the world, redeeming the world in absolutely every way. I'm, I'm pretty convinced, right, this is actually the best way for us to kind of grapple with and, and understand the big story of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And I think it's actually the best way for us to kind of pull together what the Bible has to say on pretty much any topic you want to throw at it, right? The Bible, you see, has on its surface 
kind of random things to say about a whole lot of topics. And you might look, maybe you're here today and you've read the Bible a bit and it's a bit confusing. You might look at the Bible and think, yeah, it's got a lot of random things to say. And I wonder if the Bible, maybe the author of the Bible is a little bit confused about you know, what it thinks about a particular topic because the things can be a little bit random. But I think if you think about topics in the Bible along that sort of line, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, these topics become kind of clear. Just to give you one example other than work, let's talk about money. Now this sermon, by the way, welcome to church at City Light Church, this is not a talk about money. I'm just using money as an illustration of how it can be a bit confusing, but this way of thinking about it kind of clarifies it. If you've read the Bible, right, the Bible has some pretty interesting things to say about money. On the one hand, you'll find plenty of Bible passages, Old Testament, New Testament, that praise money, right? That describe wealth as beautiful and in lofty terms, that being wealthy, having money is a blessing from God. Think about Abraham right back at the beginning of the Bible. He is described as incredibly wealthy and also described as being blessed by God. Think of Solomon, King Solomon in the Old Testament um, and his wealth and it's seen as a good thing. Jump forward into the New Testament. Um, we, We meet the Philippian church who are described as being incredibly generous giving very generously of their wealth to the point where it's described as a sweet aroma to the Lord, high praise for their generosity and giving. And then you get to the end of the Bible, right? You've gone from Genesis, you know, like to Abraham, and then New Testament, right to the other end of the Bible, Revelation, and the kingdom of God is described as wealthy. I mean, it's got streets paved with gold, right? It's pretty amazing. So on the one hand, the Bible praises wealth, but there are tons of passages that don't, right? They go the other end, they criticize wealth, they criticize the wealthy. Listen to this, it is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Who said that? Jesus, it's pretty full on. Paul writes, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul's words. There are many critiques of wealth. Now, like a novice reader of the Bible might go, it would seem the Bible doesn't really know what to think about money. It's completely random. Well, no. Understanding the fourfold kind of story of the Bible helps us to make, get clarity on what the Bible seems to say about money. So if you think creation, fall, redemption, restoration, the starting point in creation is that money is created good by God. That's where the biblical narrative begins. And yet wealth, because of human sinfulness, because of our selfishness, becomes corrupted and becomes a corrupting influence in our lives. But of course, because of God's redemptive work through the Lord Jesus Christ in his world, money can be transformed. So rather than using money to kind of serve my life and be selfish, money can be used to redeem and bring restoration in the world. So if you hold that fourfold narrative in mind, the Bible's teaching on wealth and money kind of begins to make sense. Ditto work, what we do for a living, and tons of other topics. 
Well, the starting point, as we saw in week one of this series um, in the Bible, um, is that work is a good thing. It's a positive good in God's good creation. That was week one, where we looked at week one, we were made for work. It's really striking. Um, I think we get used to this a little bit now, but in the ancient world, um, when you know the Old Testament was written and things like that, when the creation narrative was handed on to God's people, this was a really novel idea that work was a good thing. In the ancient Near East, um, so Israel, God's people, it was a nation, it was a group of people. They were surrounded by other nations of people as well. The Mesopotamians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Persians, right? All of those guys went, work's not a good thing. Peasants worked in the ancient world so that the elites could rule and rest. That's how work functioned. In the Greco-Roman culture in the first century, that's when Jesus turned up, work was regarded as a drag on your soul, right? Uh, The Greeks believed that what we should spend our time doing is just walking around in togas and things like that, contemplating philosophy. Don't use your hands, that's demeaning. But the Bible from the beginning, right? From beginning to end, praises work. God in chapter one of the Bible is a worker. Beautiful imagery, right? He works six days, he rests on the seventh. And then you turn the page to chapter two and you meet Adam, made in the image of God. And what does he do? He he works. Works the ground, realizes the earth, the creation's potential. And that's all before the fall of Genesis chapter 3. Our work, brothers and sisters and friends, is inherently good. There is a sense, right, in that as we work, we join in with the creation that works. Now, I should clarify this morning, right? As I meant, whenever I mention the word work, I don't just mean paid professional work. I'm thinking here of the work of a carer, a house worker, volunteer work in the community. But the reality is, right, our work, we get in there and we work and we realize the world's potential. We work with the creation. So if you're a farmer, any farmers here this morning? No, there you go. But anyway, if you're a farmer, if you happen to find yourself a farmer, maybe you thought, actually, the work I'd rather do than right now is do anything. I'll, do a far- I'll be a farmer. If you're a farmer, right, a farmer works, but he soon discovers that the soil and the seeds are also working. He works in concert with those. If you're an engineer, which is pretty much half of our church, you know, if you're an engineer, you discover that there are rational principles. We call them natural laws built into creation itself. So the engineer works... And it also looks like the creation's working as well. You're participating in something larger than yourself. Lawyers and educators work within a social system where there's natural human tendencies that work. Work at its heart is not a fight against the world. It's a participation with the inherent productivity of God's world. If I can put it like this, right, there's almost something magic about work. We participate in a rational system governed by a good God who wants to bring out good things. And yet, week two, we saw that despite work being inherently good, work's been corrupted and is corrupting. Work itself has become mere toil. Work's frustrated by God, it's subject to market forces and sometimes flawed by our human evil. Just this week, I met a man uh, from Sydney. I was at a lunch, um, and I was invited to 
this lunch, and he, this guy that I met was from Sydney. He was a top gas executive. I don't even know what that means, but he was a top gas executive. We got talking, and as I'm talking, he just started downloading on me, right? I'm like, I just want to come and eat some food. And he's just going, Bleh. he was just downloading on me all these frustrations with work. I mean, this guy was at the top of his game, and he said, you know what, Simon? I just dig up gas every day. I just dig up gas tomorrow and then the next day, it is so frustrating. Now I had this sermon in my mind, right? And I felt like launching in saying, no, 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 work's really good. God was a worker, he's made us in his image. I didn't do that, right? I just, I just let him download upon me and then I walked away. It was clear that he was feeling the frustration and futility that often accompanies work. Work is not always magic. And you feel this, don't you? I feel that. Sometimes work itself is also an expression of sin. I mean, there are obvious ways where it's an expression of sin. A person who works as a hitman. Any hitman here today? <laughs> God loves you. You know, you know, that's probably not a great career choice, right? Or another expression of sin is probably like a, a person who deals drugs. But in subtle ways, you know, as we looked at last week in particular, work can sort of drift into that place where it becomes almost who we are, defining of ourself, and we idolise work. We idolise the status that it gives us. We can idolise what it can provide for us, where things, you know, when we define ourselves by what we do. And that can lead some people, right, to just working so, so hard, even when they don't have to, and it diminishes all other aspects of their life. So work itself is corrupted, and it's corrupting. And the Bible is completely open about that. From the perspective of God's good creation, we are to think of work as participating in the productivity of the world But in light of the fall, our eyes need to be wide open to the fact that sometimes work is just plain hard, sometimes even evil. And this side of the cross, awaiting the fullness of God's kingdom to come, it's going to be a mixture of both for us. Magic and also toil. So that's weeks one, two and three. What are we doing today? What special insight does redemption and restoration have in our understanding of work? How do we think of work in terms of God's good creation? How do we think of work? We've thought about work in light of the fall. How does God's plan to redeem and restore all things in Jesus Christ shape how we are to think about and go about our work? Again, work in that broad sense, professional, paid, volunteer, caring, homework, uni work. I've got five brief things to say, and you say, Jacko, the word Jacko and brief do not go together. But I, I almost promise you they'll be quick. Five things this morning as we think about work in terms of redemption and restoration. Number one, here it is, it's coming up on the screen. Thanks, one, beautiful. Work has the dignity of an eternal reality, not just a temporary one. Work has the dignity of an eternal reality, not just a temporary one. Work itself, brothers and sisters, will be redeemed in the new creation. 
I'm not just making this up. The wonderful picture of the new creation that we had read by Ruth just before from Isaiah 65, the Old Testament's most famous passage about God's future kingdom, which Revelation 21, almost the last chapter of the Bible will pick up on, the new heavens, the new earth, God coming to be with us, God redeeming all things, ending death forever. The Isaiah 65 passage has a really clear statement in it about the redemption of work. Have a look, Isaiah 65 verse 21. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain. Now this language comes directly out of Genesis chapter three, the passage about the fall of Adam, the fall of humanity. In Genesis three, we have that language, right, about laboring and toiling in vain. Um, Genesis three, verse 17, through painful toil, you will eat the food all the days of your life. The Isaiah 65 passage reflects on that passage and says that a day will come when we will build houses, when work again will work perfectly, vineyards we plant will just flourish. Now obviously Isaiah 65's picture language, but it's a picture, it's picture language of the full recovery of work, just like it was back in the Garden of Eden before the fall, where creativity and productivity and fruitful flourishing is the result of all of our labors, where it's just like magic all the time. And this gives an enormous dignity to our work. Work is not just a necessary evil. Work is not just a secular activity. You know what the word secular means? You know where it comes from? It comes from the Latin for this age. That's what secular means. You know, as if work is just something we do in this age and not for the age to come. Work is eternal. Now, work in the new creation won't be superseded by all of us just sort of simply lazing about on banana lounges behind, you know, beside, you know, infinity pools, drinking mojitos and singing How Great Is Our God by Chris Tomlin over and over and over again. It won't be like that. Praise the Lord. I mean, I don't mind Chris Tomlin and I don't mind the occasional mojito, but there's got to be something else to do, right? Creativity and productivity are eternal features of God's world and God's future kingdom. And the degree to which that, you know, you know those moments when you're working, you know, you're toiling away, I don't know, on the ward or digging a hole, I don't know. And you know when your creativity and productivity just kind of come together and things work? Have you had those moments? I have them like once a year. No, you know those moments where it just sort of seems to work? That feeling, that moment is like a taste of the future where creativity and productivity and flourishing just come together. That's the future. That's true, you know, if you're a Meals on Wheels volunteer. It's true if you're an engineer, true if you're a teacher, even a hotshot lawyer. That's point one. Point two, some forms of work are directly redemptive and are so a picture, and so are a picture of the gospel. Some jobs are intrinsically all about mending stuff that's broken. 
So in its very nature, it's in the very nature of, you know, doctoring, nursing, physiotherapying, if there's such a word, counselling, plumbing, electricians, educators, maybe even lawyers sneak in there, I don't know. But there's a sense in which these jobs are all about repairing stuff that's broken and therefore they're a picture of God's ultimate intention for the world. You know, hence Jesus' famous comparison, right? You know where he compares the work of a doctor to his own ministry? In Luke 5, it's not, only, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Just so, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, my point is not that there are going to be doctors and nurses in the new creation. There actually won't be. In the new creation, right, our bodies will be redeemed, the Bible says. So apologies to the doctors and the nurses in the house, but you'll have to find something else to do, you know. But, you know, but nursing and doctoring now and here and the now is like a, a snapshot of God's ultimate redemption of all things. Same with teachers and educators and things like that. They won't, teachers and educators won't be needed in the new creation. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12, in that day we will know as we have been known. We'll have complete knowledge. But educators here and now are doing a preemptive activity pointing us to the full knowledge that we will have one day. I could multiply the examples, right, of how lots of work is redemptive and so gives us pictures of the gospel. Um, my point is the same. See how fast we're moving? Point three. Look at that. One, two, three. Point three. All kinds of work can be indirectly redemptive through our ethic, through how we work. Almost, here's, here's the point, right? Almost any job can be redemptive in the broad sense in the way that we do the job regardless of the job description or the outcomes of the job, right? So there's almost a sense that any job we do can be somewhat redemptive, have an indirect role. Now, I'm going to give you an example, right? This may not work very well, so just heads up. Um, someone might want to correct me about this. I cannot see how a hedge fund manager is directly redemptive as a job. I cannot see how a hedge fund manager is directly redemptive as a job. Now, I'm expecting someone at the door to come up to me and say, no, Jacko, let me tell you about how a hedge fund manager is redemptive. And that glazed look that comes over my face will just be how blown away I am. How wonderful your job is. That's what it will look. I'll just be, oh. But I, I can't think of how a hedge fund manager is directly redeeming the world in any way. But a Christian hedge fund manager who goes about their work motivated by the gospel, living in light of the gospel, working unto the Lord, can be indirectly redemptive. With a gospel ethic applied, the care and friendship offered to clients, I don't know, I actually don't even know if hedge fund managers have actual human clients, I don't know, maybe they do. But the way they care for their co-workers, the way they go about their job can be indirectly redemptive. And this is a big theme in the New Testament, right? The ethic that you bring to your work, whatever it might be. Paul writes, make it your ambition, 1 Thessalonians 4, to lead a quiet life. Now that doesn't mean not saying a word when you're at work, right? You're allowed to talk when you're at work if you're a Christian, okay? Is that clear? You know, it's not that. It's actually the technical term about, you know, leading a quiet life is actually about being a peacemaker. That's your sort of standard MO, he goes on, you should mind your own business 
uh, instead of being a busy body and work with your hands, right? The Greeks would have hated that, dragging your philosophical soul down. Not for Paul. Just as we told you, so that your daily life and work may win the respect of outsiders and so that you won't be dependent on anybody. Gospel ethic. In another context, um, slaves and masters, um, but no less applicable, Paul says, we looked at this last week, chapter 3, Colossians, uh, verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Imagine going to work tomorrow not to be there to impress people, but to serve people and to serve God with a gospel ethic. And so join with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Holy Trinity, in seeing this world redeemed and restored in concert with them. The gospel ethic we bring to the workplace can be indirectly redemptive. So Christians can and should be models of best practice in our workplaces. Christians should be known for their generosity at work. We should be forces for good in our workplaces. We should be on about, you know, corporate integrity and responsibility. We should be, we we as Christians, right, should be leading, you know, those fundraising drives that happen at workplaces all the time now? You know, we should be leading those. We should be the greatest encouragers. We should be the hardest workers. And Christians should also be known for correct work, play, balance and sometimes we'll be criticized for this a good friend of mine when I was living and working in Sydney a friend of mine Megan she worked for this like massive law firm Um, I've never worked in a law firm but they don't sound like the nicest places to work but she was a Christian woman loved Jesus worked as a lawyer in this huge you know multinational law firm where the expectation was that you just worked and worked and worked and worked and everyone was kind of looking around waiting for the first person to leave you're going they're pretty weak they're not very committed that was the kind of culture right you know like to leave first was like a sign of weakness or lack of commitment But Megan loved the Lord Jesus Christ and she loved her local church and she loved her midweek Bible study group that on Wednesday she would leave at 6pm on the dot to get to her Bible study. And she was criticised for that by lots of her colleagues. But she kind of imbibed this kind of work rest. She didn't want work to just be the dominant thing. I knew someone else when I was living in Sydney who worked for City Rail, you know, like the the suburban train network that got people all over the place. And this person worked in City Rail and worked in one of the kiosks at City Rail where they sold, you know, like Chico rolls and pies and chips and things like that. And uh, she worked there for a little while. And um, the done thing was that at the end of your shift, you stole food, right, from the kiosk. You know, you you took food home with you that wasn't yours. She, as a Christian woman, said, I'm not going to do that. And she copped all kinds of flack for that, sort of as a Christian. But she was living out a gospel ethic, seeking to be a model person. My point is, right, in all those little stories, living out the gospel ethic, living for Jesus in the workplace, won't always be happy. But living out a redemptive gospel ethic at work, it's working for the Lord. Wherever you are, work for the Lord. He sees you. He'll honour you. Point three. Point four. Work enables us to share resources with the poor. 
Work enables us to share resources with the poor. Part of what God wants for your work is your money. Yeah? God wants your money for the poor. There are plenty of texts where we could go for this, but let's choose uh, Ephesians 4.28. And look, it's on the screen. There you go. Um, Anyone who has been stealing, Paul says to Christians, must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Why do we work? So that you've got stuff to share. Paul is just reflecting, right, on an ancient Jewish tradition that comes straight out of the book of Deuteronomy. There's this extraordinary law that was given to God's ancient people, the Israelites, that they were to follow, that when they harvested their crop, they were to leave the edge of the crop. Why? So that the poor could pick it up and collect it. Uh, Deuteronomy 24 says this, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner and the, father, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. The language is very clearly saying here, that the excess doesn't actually belong to you, it belongs to the poor. It's very striking. Imagine thinking of your life like this, that the excess I have from the earnings that I make at work are actually not mine, they're to share for the needy, for the poor, for my family, for my church family. The excess that I have isn't for me, but it's for the needy. You know that I love books, and a new book's just kind of come onto the shelves called Bullies and Saints by John Dixon, Australian author, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. It's a really good book. Um, but in it, he, he writes this. I love this. As early as the AD 300s, when Christians were still a minority within the empire, churches frequently owned farmland and employed farmers to work the land specifically to feed the great mass of destitute people in the community. Isn't that amazing? Like, we've got to reevaluate our budget here at City Light Church, North Adelaide, you know, before the next financial year kicks in. I reckon we should put in a line, purchase some farmland somewhere so we can just become farmers and toil the land and give the proceeds to the... Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? People transformed by the gospel who came to see that everything they had was actually not theirs. It belongs to God. God's given us some and the rest of it we had to share. Um, the great John Wesley, um, one of the founders of the great awakening of the 18th century that swept across the US and swept into the UK. Um, he founded Methodism. Um, Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, was his brother. He had this principle that he set in train in Methodism and it still exists today. Here it is. Having first gained all you can, money, and secondly, saved all you can, then give all you can. Gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. John Wesley, he was a little bit of a freak, actually, John Wesley. Um, he was quoted in the latter years of his life saying, if you find me with 10 pounds on my person when I die, then count me a liar and a cheat. He didn't want to have anything left but this, but all given away. Methodists can be a little bit intense sometimes, right? But anyway, just you get the point. 
We work in part to share resources that we have with the poor. And I, I personally feel challenged by this. And I, I imagine for many of us in the room, this is a growth area for us. To not keep all the proceeds to ourselves, but to be generous. Sharing with the needy among us here, sharing with the needy in Australia, around the world. I think it's a growth area. Growth area for me. Point five. Work enables us to share the gospel with others through dollars, words, and deeds. Now, sure, American Airlines pilot Angelo Keane was a little misguided, don't you think, when, you know, he, he really thought, right, the only place that, you know, only way to make his piloting, his flying planes sort of sacred was to use it as a platform for the gospel. I think he was a bit misguided. Equally misguided is the sermon you might hear in church from time to time, I've heard them, which basically declares that the main point of your secular work, your day-to-day grind, is simply to raise money for the true work of the gospel that we do in church or that missionaries do around the world. I also think that's misguided. But there's a little bit of truth in every heresy, right? There often is. Just as the Lord wants you and I to work to earn money to give to the poor and the needy, the Lord wants us to earn money to help the spiritually poor. It's not the reason you work, no. But it's one of the beautiful functions of earning money in your work. God wants you to give to the work of the gospel. And the Philippian Christians in the first century were famous at this. The Philippian Christians were so generous. They were probably, one of the, probably the only church that actually kind of got this and used a whole lot of their own money to support the ministry of the Apostle Paul as he took the gospel towards the nations. Um, they gave out of their own earnings as a church for the New Testament tells us for about 12 years. And what we have in Philippians 4 is like a hallmark thank you card from Paul to the Philippians. Uh, it says this, Philippians 4, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Wow. The language that Paul uses, right, to praise them for the gifts that they've sent to enable him to do the work of making Jesus known in all these different places, he kind of links to like a high priestly sacrifice in the temple, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. For a former Jew, you could hardly use language of higher praise. Giving money to the work of the gospel is worship and therefore earning money in order to do that is worship. Work in of itself, right, is worshiped unto the Lord. But in addition, look what you can do for the gospel. But actually there's more than that. Work can give you opportunities to promote the gospel yourself. Not just, you know, I earn some money and pay the professional church people to do the gospel ministry. No, work itself gives you and I opportunities to promote Jesus where we are. 
through your work, through your life and your lips, you can promote the good news of Jesus directly. In Titus chapter two, we get this right. Again, in the context of slaves and masters, but you'll see the application, I hope. Here we go. Yeah, teach slaves, Paul writes to Titus, to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. And you guys look at that image on the screen and go, did Jacko get his like, clip art a bit wrong? Like, Why is there lipstick and blush and whatever the other products are? Let me tell you, the the word attractive that Paul uses when he writes to Titus is the word cosmeto, from which we get the word makeup, cosmetics. And it does mean to beautify something. That's really interesting. I think that's really interesting. Through works, Paul says, through our gospel-filled ethic, you can actually make the gospel look beautifuler. That's not a word, by the way. You make it look beautiful. Now the gospel itself, right, on its own is stunning and beautiful. The news that God in his love for you, knowing all your flaws, foibles and failures, knowing all my flaws, foibles and failures, came into the world personally in the Lord Jesus Christ, lived the life that we could never live, died the death that our sin deserved and then rose triumphantly from the grave, crushing death once and for all and then ascending to glory and then says, hey, do you wanna be part of this? Do you wanna be part of my family? Simply beautiful. If you're here today and you don't know the beautiful truth of the gospel, then please talk to me. I want you to know Jesus, the most beautiful human to ever live, who is the center of the most beautiful story of all time. But Paul says, the way you work, the way you live, the way you use your lips can make the gospel even more beautiful. You can adorn the gospel. You make the gospel that you believe, the gospel that you speak, attractive to those who look at your gospel life. We can adorn the gospel. And I love the connection you see in that last line between gospel living and gospel preaching. Obviously, teaching about God the Saviour is going on, but the life of the workers can make that gospel look even more attractive. In your work, paid or unpaid, Here's a question. Are you approaching it with a sense that you can actually be a cosmetic for the gospel? A beautiful adornment to an already beautiful message. I heard a story of a high-level manager in the US. He, He turned to Christ. He turned to Christ primarily because his boss, who was the top executive, the CEO of the company, one day after they'd had a big blue, you know, they had a big fight in the workplace, the CEO came down to chat to him and apologised for his behaviour and asked for him to sort of forgive him. And this manager had never had a boss like that before, right, who'd stooped down and sort of asked for forgiveness for his bad behaviour. The, the manager kind of was intrigued and said, like, what's motivated you to do this? discovered that it was the gospel, explored the gospel, found it irresistible, believed on Jesus and repented and has trusted and now lives for Jesus. Beautifying the gospel. Doesn't always go like that, right? You've probably had those experiences where you've sought to 
proclaim the gospel in the workplace and you've sought to you know, beautify the gospel as well and it hasn't gone that way. A friend of mine, his name's Mark, he's an A380 pilot, works for Emirates based in the Middle East. He told me one day um, in this moment of evangelistic zeal, right, that he raised a conversation with the, the first officer that he was flying with. Um, so one night they were flying, it was dark, and they were looking out the window. I've, I've never been up there, but apparently it must be. It was this spectacular night, stars shining everywhere. And, and Mark just thought, wow, this is particularly special. And so he turned to his you know, first offer and says, isn't that amazing? It's really hard to believe that it's an accident. And the first officer replied, not when you've been to Vietnam, mate, and seen what I've seen. It's all a bloody accident. Mark just went back to flying the plane. You know, it doesn't always go well, yeah? But here's the thing. I bet if that first officer ever gets to a place where he's keen to explore spiritual things or challenged about matters of spirituality and bigger than him, I reckon you'll be going to Mark. To Mark. Well, much more can be said. Let me summarise what I've said and then I'm going to pray. Work has the dignity of an eternal reality, not just a temporary one. Some forms of work, brothers and sisters, are directly redemptive, offering us a picture of the gospel, a taste of the future. Some forms of work can be indirectly redemptive through the way we work, our gospel ethic. Work enables you and I to share our resources with the poor. And work enables us to promote the good news of Jesus Christ in in word, with dollars, and even with our deeds. The gospel of God's grace and his work in redeeming all things can and should shape the way we think and go about our work day after day, whatever the work is that the Lord has given us to do. Let's pray. Let's pray and commit ourselves to God. God our Father, would you grant to us special insight, uh, special insight to each one of us in the building today. Uh, those of us who are contributing in multiple different ways, whether we're volunteering or caring for others, whether we're working professionally. Father, help us to all work in such a way that is a way that's shaped by your great redemption. And may we work at whatever we do with all of our heart, serving you as an act of worship. And Lord, we ask this for the glory of your name, for the good of our community, for our joy, and we ask it ultimately in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.